You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're joined today by Howard Bloom, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller and Edgar Award winner, American Lightning, as well as Wanted, The Gold of Exodus, Gangland, and The Floor of Heaven. Bloom is currently contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and before Vanity Fair, he wrote for the New York Times. While at the Times, he was twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. His newest book is The Last Good Night, a World War II story of espionage, adventure, and betrayal. It's a fantastic book about one of the greatest spies in history, Unfortunately, someone who is far less well-known than many of her male counterparts, which I imagine will soon begin to change, not only because of this great book, but also because of the movie that will be based on it. So thank you, Howard, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. My pleasure to speak with you. So anytime we have an author on who's written about intelligence, I really ask two basic questions to get things started. The first is, where was the uh, idea behind this book? Where, where was your inspiration? And the second is when you write about a book about intelligence, sources are always problematic. These are agencies and institutions that don't tend to want people to know a whole lot about what they do. So how did you go about coming up with the important sources necessary to write this book? Well, to go back to your original question, where the idea generated from, in the beginning, I wanted to do a book simply about a woman. Uh, this is my 14th book, and in all my previous books, I had written true stories, but I'd never had a primary, a, a female character. Maybe I tacitly understood that I wasn't ready to handle this yet, uh, but now I thought, well, I have two daughters that are in their early 20s, an ex-wife, I had paid my dues in addition to some alimony and tuition. <laughs> uh, I thought maybe I was ready uh, to, handle, to handle this. So I went to look for a woman's story to tell. And because the stories I tell are usually suspenseful and filled with adventure and are true stories, I began to look for a female spy. And that, reading through many female spy stories, I came across Betty Pack. And what I read was intriguing. Uh, she had been in lots of daring-do missions. She had not been written about before in, in great detail. Uh, when she died, I read her obit in Time magazine. They called her a blonde Bond. She used the boudoir the way Bond used the Beretta. And I thought, that's intriguing. Yeah. But also, I had to tell a true story. 
I had to be able to, for this story to be effective, for it to read like a novel, but still be true. I had to know what was going on in her mind, in her thoughts, how she was thinking and feeling throughout the course of these operations and during her complicated life. And that's a challenge when someone's been dead for over a half century. But fortunately, I found the Cambridge Archives. And at the Cambridge Archives at Churchill College, uh, which is on the outskirts of Cambridge University, it's one of the newer colleges built in 1960, uh, Hartford Montgomery Hyde, a spy who had worked with her uh, and had also been a member of parliament, he had been a professor, and towards the end of his life, he decided to write about Betty. He had known her tangentially during the war uh, when she was a spy, codenamed Cynthia, and he thought he, her exploits would be a, a pretty good bodice-ripping adventure story. <laughs> so he, he got her talking, and Betty wrote her memoirs, and these memoirs were donated to uh, Cambridge University. There was an address book that covered her activities, and in addition to that, there were letters she had written, there were letters Hyde had written, uh, there was even a a book that she had written, a sort of fairy tale, and she was just a 12-year-old girl that gave, gave great insight into her life. So I was able to now write a true-life psychological detective story, if you will. I was able to describe how Betty was thinking and feeling as she made this journey from this glamorous socialite who grew up in Washington, D.C., not all that far from the spy museum, in Georgetown, and how she then became this spy, how she was such a careless, freewheeling person, a treacherous mother, wife, daughter, and yet she was the perfect spy and that she always maintained her allegiances to the spy master she served, to the countries she served. And in addition to this personal aspect of her life, both the British had and the American uh, intelligence agencies, the CIA and and the British Secret Intelligence Service had declassified a great many documents recently that allowed me to get a sense of Betty's operational missions. I mean, when I was at the CIA, they were very eager to cooperate on this story. Uh, they told me something that they tell their new recruits. The last person to whom you say goodnight is the most dangerous. And that Betty Pack, who used the bedroom as her operational battlefield, was a personification of that warning and having all those sources and this desire to tell a woman's story, I move forward. Yeah, that, what I found interesting is that some of the, uh, the Betty Pack and Hyde uh, descriptions of her life read like a Harlequin romance novel or like Fifty Shades of Grey in some way. But in, in, in this case, and in, in, there are a lot of times, whether it's Mata Hari or other femme fatales, a lot of this is exaggerated or, or it's kind of this stereotypical image of the female spy. But in Betty Pack, she actually used the bedroom as her tradecraft, as one of her most effective ways of gaining information. So it's almost where reality is even more steamy in many ways than fiction. I mean, yes, that was what's so fascinating to me. Here was Betty, 53 years old, uh, many decades past the time when she was a 26-year-old glamorous spy, and Hyde comes to visit her. She's living in a castle in France, an ancient castle, with her second husband. And she's, as she describes it, she's in love with him. But she's also bored. 
And when Hyde comes, she uses the excuse of his visit to escape, and she goes off on what is, in effect, her final mission. She knows she's dying. She knows she has cancer that's ravaging her body. And yet she goes off on this journey, this liaison, and it's also a chance for her to look retrospectively back at her life, to try to make some sense of the tumult in it, why she was so careless to the people who she was close to, and at the same time, why she remained constant uh, to the spies' services that she was a member of, why she was able to subordinate her own reckless behavior into this intense loyalty. And the book is structured around Betty looking back retrospectively at this life she had led and trying to come to terms with it. We learn of her missions as she goes through them to hide, and she is trying to find out really what made her tick, what right. made her motivate her as she moved from adventure to adventure. And, and Betty didn't really have romances. She didn't fall in love. She had adventures. Right. Well, absolutely. You can see somebody a, a lot like Bond in which he has no real uh, emotional entanglements or they're very fleeting in many ways. Um, that's, that's the key to any spy, I think. You know, a, a, the key to being, I think, a, a good spy is to, have, to live in this sort of moral ambiguity. You mean what you say at the time, and then as you move on, uh, you can say something completely different. You can betray the person you're with. And what's the trick? Well, you believe it when you say it, and the moment you moved on, you believe the next thing you're saying. Right. I think it might be hard for people to understand how good she was at this, you know, just from hearing about it. Hard to kind of understand the kind of pull she had over people. But one of the stories you tell in your book, which I thought was, I was laughing out loud, that she was so good at seducing people, she accidentally seduced a priest into wanting to give up his vows. He fell in love with her and wanted to run off with her. Yes. Benny is in Spain. It's a civil, Spanish civil war is about to break out. She's with her husband, who's a British diplomat. And she's sort of, at this point, just an asset uh, for the British Secret Intelligence Service. She's not a, a full-blown spy. She's not being paid, but she's passing on information. In the course of all her wayward behavior, she gets the idea that she wants to be a, a, a Catholic. Uh, all her friends are Roman Catholic in the <laughs> Spanish aristocracy. She, she figures this maybe will, will help save her soul. Now, the gospel, according to Betty, is a pretty complex one because while she's making this decision, she's married <laughs> to the British diplomat. She's having an affair with a Spanish aristocrat. And at the same time, she then goes to this priest uh, to try to, who's going to teach her how to become a good Catholic. And he falls in love with her. He, he has her meet her one day across town. And there he's in a, a, a plain suit. And he kisses her and tells her he wants to run away with her. And Betty figures, well, what should I do? <laughs> and she said, well, he's a handsome man. So she falls into it. And as an act of kindness, she pays for their apartment where they'll, they'll meet. So she continues having these lessons in Catholicism, having an affair now with her husband, her, her boyfriend, and now with the priest. Yeah, she's trying to be good. And, yes. and then it, no, no matter what she tried, it turned into something that was less than, uh, less than moral, I guess is the right way to say it. 
Well, she has her own sort of morality. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a Bondian morality, and yet she has this tremendous allure, this power over people, particularly men. Well, and the priest becomes a bigger part of her story because the priest is eventually imprisoned during the Spanish Civil War because Catholicism was heavily on the side of the nationalists. And Betty, still an amateur spy at this point, concocts a plan to get him out and to break him out of prison. And not to give away the ending of this, this anecdote, but she does. And this really impresses MI6. I think that, you know, you can kind of say this is where she comes to the full attention of British intelligence, where she doesn't become a full-fledged field agent yet, but they knew they had something special on their hands. Yes, it, this episode where she doesn't take no for an answer, she shows uh, real tenacity and goes from prison from prison in Spain to find this priest and to get him out and to help him escape. And another mission where working with a member of the British government, they get a British, another British asset who's already in jail, an aristocrat. She goes into the jail impersonating his daughter and she leads him out of there and into the waiting car and he escapes. I mean, she showed great nerve. Uh, she enjoyed each of these experiences. It was exciting. That's one of the reasons why uh, she wanted to become a spy, the sense of adventure. And at the same time, she felt she was helping a cause she believed in. Well, it was an extraordinary story. She just walks into the prison, says, oh, daddy, I can't believe they arrested you by accident, and walks right out with the, with the nationalist officer, you know, under the nose of the Republicans. And, and as she's making the way to the car, there are armed guards, uh, and she feels that every moment uh, a shot could ring out. And, and the only sound really is her high heels clicking yeah. on, on the cobblestones as she's, as she's making her way, and she's just waiting for that one shot. And that, that taught her how much she loved danger. So this, this mission ended up really impressing the folks at SIS, who decided to use her more and more, and really her next step was a, a, to make her a little more formal as an asset for SIS and move her to Poland. And they actually reassigned her diplomat husband, who you mentioned already, to Poland so that she could have a natural cover to be in Warsaw. Uh, can you talk a little bit about her mission here in Poland? In Poland, in, she, gets, she arrives in 1938, and she's not there very long before her husband, who's 20 years older and looks about 40 years older, He's a pinstripe, bowler, umbrella-type sort of British diplomat, very staid figure, and he has a stroke, Arthur Pack. He goes back to London, Betty goes with him for a little bit, but he tells her to return to Poland because he wants the ambassador to believe that he'll recover and he'll be back soon at his post. So there is Betty, and as she describes it, a cold, gray Warsaw. And what does Betty do, being this restless sort of person? Well, she stumbles into an affair, and she has an affair with a Polish diplomat, and she describes it. She says it wasn't love, but it was intoxicating. Uh, they drank lots of chilled vodka. Uh, they had, he plays Chopin like a maestro, she says, and they had, he had a bare skin rug where they would cavort right in front of a blazing fire. And one night in their pillow talk, uh, this Polish diplomat mentions he had seen these incredible documents today, a secret agreement with Germany uh, and Poland where Czechoslovakia was going to be divided uh, and Germany was going to invade Czechoslovakia. Betty 
continues the evening. The next morning, though, what does Betty do? She calls the British passport control officer. And as everyone in the diplomatic community knows, the passport control officer is a, a cover and a thin cover at that uh, for the British Secret Intelligence Service agent, field agent in charge uh, at the embassy. And she calls him up and she says, how would you like to play a round of golf this afternoon? Now, it's March in Warsaw. The German army is mobilizing. The Polish golf course, even in, in the spring or summer, is, is a pretty grim place. But he gets the call and he says, sure, well, let's go play golf. And he admires Betty's tradecraft uh, because a golf course is a pretty good place uh, to talk without being overheard and to not look conspicuous at the same time. So at the golf course, she tells him what she's found out. He passes it on to London, the spy masters who are located on the headquarters on Broadway. And the word quickly comes back that uh, Betty's to find out more. This is great. And she's to do whatever she's required to do uh, to get more information. And they say, you're now a member of MI6, and they give her a monthly stipend. And that's how she sort of crosses the Rubicon and becomes a spy. Well, and, and from her Polish contacts, she's able to come back with information about the Germans, top secret message traffic, troop deployments, industrial outputs, latest gossip about who is sleeping with whom. Of course, that didn't include her. Uh, but her next major mission in, 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 in Poland was a significant mission, and that's Enigma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Y yes. In the course of her working for uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, her handler asks her, do you know Count Michael Lubienski? And Betty says, no. He says, well, we'd like you to get to meet him. So Betty calls up the American ambassador, who was an old family friend from her days in Washington, and she, she asks him to uh, throw a dinner and to give him a wink and says, could you seat, seat me next to the, uh, the count? The count is the chief secretary for the foreign minister, Joseph Beck, in, in Poland, the man who controls really uh, Polish foreign policy. So Betty's sitting next to him. She dances, him, dances with him that night all through the evening. As she put it, she would have made a play for him even if he was as ugly as Satan. Mm -hmm. And she says, fortunately, he wasn't. Uh, and by the next day, they're lovers, and she now works the count. In the course of her working the count, she finds out about a group of Polish cryptographers that have been working in Ponsam, the, the ancient city in Poland, in a basement room called the Black Chamber. And what they are trying to do is crack the Enigma machine. Uh, the Germans before the war, German businessmen used the Enigma machine for sending encrypted messages. And now, as the German military was revving up, they had revitalized the Enigma machine. They put in more keys, and it basically was typewriter, uh, where you could type one letter, and it would turn out on another Enigma machine to 150 million, million, million permutations. And the two Enigma machines would communicate with one another, and unless you had the code book, the code was unbreakable. But after three years of working on it, the young Polish uh, cryptographers had actually cracked it. And Betty passed this information on to the British. The British then were able to get a hold of this machine through their contacts in Poland. They bought it. And this was sent to Bletchley Park. And it was a missing link in helping to 
to crack the Enigma codes. Now, in an operation as complex as Enigma, there are many people involved, many heroes, from the young Poles to Alan Turing to the cryptographers at Bletchley Park. But what Betty did do helped provide the initial missing link that allowed the Bletchley Park people to take it further. And for this, she really helped the Allies. This alone helped the Allies shorten the war and to win it. At one point, you know, during the war, during the height of the war, 84,000 German messages a month were being read uh, en clair and clearly uh, by the Allies because of the, the, the fact that we cracked the Enigma machine. Oh, absolutely. And, and most of the histories of Enigma don't include her. I mean, The Imitation Game, great movie. Uh, there was no real indication of where they got a lot of this information from. And most people don't know that the Poles were the first people to crack Enigma. They think it was the British and Alan Turing. And this, you know, she plays a key role in this, in a role that thankfully now, through the book and through the movie that's coming from it, maybe people understand a little bit more about how uh, this was a multifaceted mission, not just uh, as a genius as Alan Turing was, it wasn't just one guy thinking up, oh, I know how to break this and going from there. Right. Bet- Betty played a key role uh, in Bletchley Park. There were many play- people who played key roles. There were British sailors who got Enigma machines off German uh, U-boats that were captured, they- very daring missions. There are a lot of people, many heroes in this. The movie sort of condense the story right. into a sh- shorthand at best and an accurate shorthand at worst. So Betty later on went to do some pretty interesting operations in Chile, but I want to skip to the United States because she was eventually moved back to Washington, D.C. to work with an organization called the BSC. So can you tell me, what is the BSC? The BSC, uh, the British Security Coordination, uh, was actually MI6, the British Secret Intelligence Service in America. The BSC name came from its then ally, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and it was headed by uh, William Stevenson, the man called Intrepid. It was based at uh, Rockefeller Center on Fifth Avenue in in room uh, 630, I think it is, and it really ran the British operations during the war, and, and Stevenson made it into a fairly sophisticated spying network involving camps in Canada for training people, operations in the United States, and protecting British concerns, and also an entire British spy network that was working independently uh, of the U.S. for a while, while the U.S. was still neutral. And almost working against the U.S. And what people may not understand is that the British were actively trying to get the Americans to change their stance on neutrality. And Betty plays a role in this, at least anecdotally plays a role in convincing uh, some American policymakers to change their views. Yes, Betty is out there. um, As she first started in Washington, the British government buys or rents her a house on O Street in Georgetown. And they say the purpose for the house is, quote, discreet, entertaining, unquote. And, And Betty does her share of discreet entertaining, and she does it uh, gladly, uh, for she says, king and country. Uh, she convinces American policymakers to vote for Lend-Lease, and then she 
moves more directly into the operational side. At the same time, while J. Edgar Hoover supported the BSC at the beginning, as he sees this developing into an organization with some power, and he also sees uh, the American OSS starting up and its pre precursor is, is formed, uh, he then becomes jealous, I, there's no other word I think that describes it accurately, of these other usurpers of his throne and he's out to catch Betty and other people working for the BSC as foreign agents. So they now have to worry about the various Gestapo forces and enemy forces at large in Washington, D.C. as they try to target these embassies. And they also have to worry about the FBI uh, catching them as foreign agents and throwing them into a, a, a federal penitentiary. Right. I mean, it, it, the BSC has a bit of a tacit relationship or working relationship with U.S. intelligence. I'm William Stevenson, who you mentioned before, was nicknamed Little Bill. Uh, the big bill in this case would have been William Donovan, Bill Donovan. And so this was a close-knit relationship. But the FBI was really a major problem for her. I mean, there's a huge FBI file on Betty Pack. They saw her as a foreign agent, even though she's an American, working on the same side as the OSS. And actually, that doesn't save her. I mean, even if she come out and said, no, I'm working for the OSS, that's not something that would placate the FBI in many ways. No, she, the FBI is tapping her phone. Uh, they, on orders from Hoover, focus on her. At the same time, the State Department is looking at you know, Bill Donovan as, as an enemy, too. They say he's gone too far. They don't want to give up their power. So all these forces in the American intelligence community are fighting amongst themselves and the operatives, like Betty, who are going off on these dangerous missions in Washington, uh, have to worry about danger from all sides. Now, this might be something that could have stopped her from reaching her full potential, but she had two key missions that she accomplished in the United States. One was to uh, collect or steal the Italian naval ciphers, and the other involved the Vichy French and their embassy here in the United States. Let's talk about the Italian ciphers first and how important those were. In, in 1940, uh, Churchill and the Admiralty sent word to the BSC in Washington that we need to get the Vichy ciphers. And the reason they need to get the Vichy ciphers is that the Italian, I mean the Italian naval ciphers, is the Italian fleet is controlling the Mediterranean, the British fleet is stretch perilously thin, and they really have to know what the Italians are up to if, if Britain is going to control the Mediterranean, which they'll need to do as they launch invasions into uh, Italy, wherever, in the course of, of the war. And so Betty is given this mission to try to get the ciphers. Now, the, the naval attache in, in the Italian embassy in Washington is a man by the name of Al Admiral Alberto Lay, L-A-I-S. And he just happens to be an old family friend. He know, he's known Betty since she was 13, and Betty convinces uh, him that she's going to now set out to convince him, rather, that she's now a woman. She's not a little uh, teenage girl anymore. So she calls him up. Uh, he doesn't want to come over and see her, but eventually decides that he will come and see her. He doesn't think it's proper. He goes to the house in Georgetown. He, as Betty has picked a good bottle of wine. Uh, she's put on an alluring uh, cocktail dress. And by the time the evening is over, they wind up in Betty's bedroom. 
he's a married man, of course. Uh, the Admiral is 40 years older than Betty, approximately. Uh, but that doesn't stop Betty. She's doing this for the uh, king and country. In the course of their relationship, she tells him that she needs the cipher. She has to help him. He has to help her get the cipher. And the Admiral is shocked. And he storms out of the house. And Betty's convinced, well, I've really blown it. Uh, who's going to come looking for me? Some uh, Italian security thugs will be reported to the FBI. Uh, I'm ruined. And I've blown this whole mission. But then within a week, he, he comes back to Betty's house. He appears. And her allure was too much. He couldn't stay away. And he's worked out what he thinks is an honorable compromise. He says, I can't give you the ciphers. But, but I'll give you the name of a cipher clerk who works with me, and he has the ciphers. You can get them from him. And while this is not really an honorable compromise, right. in his mind, he, he'll take it because it allows him to spend his evenings with Betty. Well, and this is somebody, sorry, this is somebody who was infatuated with Betty at 13. Now, that sounds, sounds a little creepy, but that just shows the pull that she had over some of these men. It was creepy, as Betty says. It was it was totally creepy. She's looking back at it, uh, and she said she hadn't realized when it was thirteen how creepy it was. But it clearly was. But she's able to con- to control the, the this man who used to be head of Italian intelligence before he became the naval attaché uh, in Washington, and she now has the name of the cipher clerk, and she's putting on a new cover. She's going to go as a journalist. And she's going to do a story, she tells the clerk, about the people behind the scenes in the embassy, the people who really accomplish things. And this impresses him. And she winds up inviting him to her house for dinner. She cooks him a pasta dinner. There's another nice bottle of wine. And he's seeing how people can live. He's never been treated this way as a man of significance before. And at that moment, Betty says, well, I want to get the ciphers and I'll pay you for them. You can live like this. I'll make you rich. And Betty, who knew the art of the deal, negotiates to get the ciphers for a good price. They're photographed by the uh, British security services, and they're put back into the the safe in the Italian uh, embassy. And then, uh, at a battle off the tip of Greece, Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham surprises the Italian fleet. 2,400 Italian sailors are killed, uh, a Three destroyers, two cruisers, uh, and one uh, carrier are all destroyed. The Italian fleet is in tatters. And for the rest of the war, the Britain controlled the Mediterranean. And this was accomplished largely because of the ciphers that Betty was able to uh, get. I thought the great part of this story was that she actually paid less than they were willing to pay. She basically got a, a deal Yes, she got a deal. Betty was shrewd. She, was, she wasn't going to give away uh, Britain's money too easily. <laughs> so uh, her most elaborate mission comes against Vichy France. And just the basic history behind this is that when the Germans invade France, they only take over the northern part. They allow the southern part of France to continue as a bit of a puppet state called Vichy France behind the place where the capital was. And here a mission within the Vichy embassy in Washington, D.C., she would actually recruit an agent, an asset within the embassy, who would actually eventually become her husband. And this was one of the most important things that Betty was able to do. Can you talk a little bit? Now, this could take two hours to explain this, but in the five-minute version of this mission, can you lay out what she did against the Vichy French? 
Betty, the Allies, in right after Pearl Harbor, decide that they will launch their first mission as a united team against uh, Germany in North Africa. Uh, Churchill comes to Washington, D.C., meets with FDR, and the plans begin to move forward that we will invade North Africa, which is controlled by uh, the Vichy French. Now, the Vichy French, even though it is this sort of works as a Nazi puppet state, it still is allowed to be uh, an independent state and has its own embassy here in Washington. And their ciphers for their codes are in a locked safe on the second floor of the Vichy Embassy on Wyoming Avenue in Washington, D.C. So Betty has to somehow get in there, crack the safe, and get out and get the ciphers photographed and get them put back in uh, before they discover that they've been taken out. She begins this, as you said, uh, she forms a relationship with Charles Bruce, uh, who's the press attaché. He's an aristocratic, very French Frenchman, uh, very suave, been married three times or five times. <laughs> the files are not quite clear ab about it. Uh, and he meets Betty one afternoon before she's going to see the French Vichy ambassador. Uh, the next day he sends her roses in that morning. They have lunch uh, that afternoon. And by the evening, they're lovers. Uh, he, he's back in Betty's bedroom at her house on O Street. She eventually... Two things happen. The first thing that happens that never happened before in Betty's career, she falls in love with him. But that doesn't stop her from betraying him or leading him on a path to treason. She can lay in his arms, tell him how much she loves her, and as soon as he leaves her bedroom, she can sit, go to her desk and her typewriter, and she types down everything he says, and she passes this on to the British and the Americans. Uh, she is lives very easily in this world of moral ambiguity. Uh, but she finally tells him that they need the ciphers, and it's Bruce, who is now in love with her too, who comes up with this plan. He says, they go to the night watchman who's protecting the embassy, has a fierce Alsatian dog, and they tell them, we really have no place for our liaisons. Uh, we, Betty is he says, they make up a story, he lives with her parents, he is married, and he can't take her home to his house. So they tell the, the French watchman, uh, we're going to come to my office late at night. And the Frenchman watchman, you know, go along with this. You know, l'amour is a convincing <laughs> argument for any, any Frenchman. Uh, so they do this, and they keep up, they build a very effective cover. They're there many nights uh, for several weeks, and their passion is intense, and the watchman can hear it uh, throughout the embassy. And finally, one night, they bring in a bottle of champagne, and, the bottle, and they say they've come to celebrate their anniversary, and they want the night watchman to, to have a celebrate with them. And they pour him a drink of champagne, and then Betty puts a sleeping powder that the OSS has provided for her in the, in the uh, champagne, and also in the water bowl of the fierce Alsatian dog. And it works. They go out like a light. So Betty makes her way to the second floor safe. Now, before she's gotten to the safe, she's had weeks of training in how to crack a safe. 
The OSS is taking a convict out of a jail in, in Georgia. They call him the Georgia Cracker, and he's taught Betty how to crack a safe. So she's able to work on this old Mosler safe, and she finally gets it open. But the sun's coming up outside, and the next work shift is going to come in. The cleaning crew will be coming in at dawn, and she, there's no time to get the ciphers photographed. So she slams the safe shut. She leaves, and she goes to speak with her OSS handler, and they tell her, well, you tried. You can't go back again. You can't give a sleeping powder uh, to the night watchman for a second night. It'll become suspicious. But Betty convinces him to let her try again. And this time, of course, she walks into the embassy with Bruce, and immediately they feel that the watchman is suspicious. He thinks maybe he had been drugged the night before. But they go and wait till he falls asleep, and then Betty makes her way to, to the safe. And this time, the safe, she's had practice, opens much more easily. But as she's turning the dial of the safe, she hears footsteps coming down the hall, and they're hard, aggressive footsteps, and she feels the watchman is coming to, to capture them in the act of stealing the ciphers. So what does Betty do? She immediately starts to take off all her clothes. She's standing there only in her pearl necklace as Bruce says, what are you doing? And she says, take off your clothes too. If they think we're doing something naughty, that's the word she uses, uh, then they won't think we're here stealing ciphers. And the, she's standing there in the pearls. The watchman comes in. He has his, his torch. He shines the torch on her. Uh, she tries to cover herself up half-heartedly and goes, ooh la la. That's what she said, she said. And uh, the watchman says, oh, pardon, madame, pardon. And he leaves. And there's Betty in just her pearls getting the ciphers out of the safe. She passes them uh, out the window to the waiting OSS man. And they're taken and photographed and put back in time. And then three months later, in November uh, of 42, when 33,000 uh, troops land on the beaches of North Africa, they're able to do that successfully, in large part because of the ciphers and the intelligence uh, that Betty was able to uh, provide the Allies. Yeah, it's it's hard to to understate how instrumental these these Vichy French ciphers were for the invasion of North Africa for Operation Torch. I mean, they knew everything. They knew where the enemy was, how they were composed. They knew that they didn't know what was coming. I mean, it, it's it's like having the perfect information before an operation like this. It's playing poker and knowing what the other your, your opponent's hands, what cards he's holding, and. The invasion of North Africa was really, as Churchill said, the end of the beginning. That was a phrase he used. Uh, it looked at that point before the invasion of North Africa that the Allies were losing the war. And with the invasion of North Africa, that low period of the Allied effort came to an end, and they were now able to move forward aggressively uh, against Germany. Well, the, the worst thing that can happen to a, a spy other than getting killed or captured is getting burned. And Betty, as successful as she had been, eventually runs out of luck. And she gets burned right before the, uh, the idea of doing what could arguably be her most ambitious mission and to put her into occupied France and then work directly against the Germans there. Can you talk a little bit about this? After the success of the Vichy... Um, embassy operation, both the British and the Americans, uh, Big Bill, Donovan, and Little Bill, were very high on Betty. And she, she spoke perfect French. She was glamorous. 
they thought that she and Bruce could go in as a team. Uh, and his Bruce's family knew everyone who mattered in, in France. They figured she would be able to work their way up the French hierarchy and even perhaps charm the Gestapo. The one problem was they needed a good cover story. After all, uh, Bruce was married. He couldn't necessarily bring her as his mistress. And she was American, and she, she was uh, the wife of a British diplomat still. Uh, that would, that would you know, raise alarm bells in the Gestapo once they found that out. So they needed a legend for her. They had to build a false identity. And the Americans looked at her and they said, well, she's young enough to be Bruce's daughter. And that's what convinced them. Betty could pass as, as his daughter. Uh, and so they now invented a cover story. Fortunately, or sadly also too, Bruce's wife uh, had been married previously. And her, she'd lost a daughter in, in, in infancy. Betty became this daughter. They found the name of an American sailor who had died from California, uh, who had died on a mission. Betty became his widow, who was also Bruce's stepdaughter. And they were going to infiltrate all three of them now into uh, France. The mother, Bruce, and also Betty. But then something happened beyond their control. As a consequence of the success of the North African operation, uh, Germany took over Vichy France, and in doing so, they interned the American diplomatic corps who was there. To retaliate, the U.S. State Department took the French diplomatic corps, and they interned them. They sent them to the Hotel Hershey, which is, still exists in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the chocolate town, uh, the rather nice place on several hundred acres. Uh, the French, though, complained that it didn't have a, a, a good enough wine cellar. Uh, they thought their internment was, uh, you know, hard labor almost because there wasn't the, the wines that were used to available <laughs> to them. Uh, so Betty now makes up her, her mind to get there where her, her lover is Bruce and his wife. She's cut off her hair, her long blonde hair, but the Allies say this isn't enough. They make her dye it a, a mousy brown color. They get her hormone glasses. Betty does whatever she can to turn down her oomph. Uh, and she goes off to the Hershey Hotel as Bruce's stepdaughter and the daughter of Bruce's wife. And the wife is going along with this. She's well ready to help the Allied cause. And then <laughs> one morning, the wife walks into her husband's bedroom, and there's the stepdaughter, Betty, <laughs> lying naked next to him. And, and the wife goes ballistic. She starts running through the halls of the hotel. This woman is not my uh, daughter. She's a spy. She's an American spy. And after that, Betty's cover, her operational usefulness was blown. This fiasco ended her career, but what a career it was. Absolutely. So I want to end with two somewhat philosophical questions. The first is about Pack as a woman, because she took a lot of grief historically, and I think she still does. And, and I'm interested to see what kind of reception you get about her with the book for her freewheeling ways. And of course, if you if you compare this to James Bond, who she's been compared to, Bond, of course, gets kudos for his lifestyle, like you know the suave spy who beds the gorgeous woman. 
every single movie. This seems like a major double standard to me and something that I think your book does a really good job in trying to to point out the double standard, but also to, to demonstrate that this isn't just some unsatiable woman that just needed sex every day. This was somebody who was doing exactly what Bond does to get information. And for whatever reason, we've, we as a society have, have looked at it in a, in a dramatically different way. Yes, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book and tell this woman's story, because it was a woman who was exactly the woman she wanted to be. And she was able to channel it into a cause she believed in. Uh, you know, Betty is someone I admire. I, some of the reviews are, are you know, castigate Betty, uh, say she's a nymphomaniac, uh, she's a careless woman, but they don't realize that there was this continuity of purpose uh, throughout her life. Uh, and as you point out, James Bond can do the same thing, and we admire him. Uh, if a woman does it, it's, some, it's something less. And, and that double standard, I think, it's time has passed. I mean, Betty was one of the, you know, the precursors of the women's movement that we're living in today. She was a liberated woman uh, who helped the Allies win the war. And that's something I think she can go, you know, she enjoyed. And at the same time, we can respect so as I refre- referenced in the very beginning, uh, this has been optioned for a movie. Uh, and if you Google this, uh, if you Google the, the book and movie, you'll run into some rumors, which I want to ask you about, uh, the rumors of potentially who might play Betty Pack. And you can mention, you can talk whatever you want about that. But I want to ask you the question about how do you think they're going to play this movie? Do you think they're going to uh, emphasize the double standard? Do you think they're going to show a liberated woman? Do you think they're going to dial down the sex a little bit to make it more palatable for current society? In my conversations with uh, Sony Pictures and Columbia TriStar uh, Studios, uh, I haven't found any desire to dial things down. Now, it might be easier to talk to and get uh, more candid conversations with the CIA (laughs) than a Hollywood studio. But I think one of the reasons why they bought this book, because they were intrigued by Betty's story. They wanted to tell a story of a female bond, of a truly liberated woman who did things her way. And the impression I'm getting is Betty is going to be a very strong-willed woman who does exactly what she does in the book. And, and that's why they've been talking to uh, Jennifer Lawrence uh, to play Betty. Uh, I know they've had the conversations have gone quite far. Good Morning America even announced that uh, Jennifer Lawrence has the role as the writer of the book. I'd be probably be the last person to know. <laughs> uh, but uh, to me, I think that would be an excellent choice. As I said before, a spy is basically an actress and has to say one thing one moment and something often entirely contradictory the next. And to be able to live on those two separate levels uh, requires an actress's skill. And Jennifer Lawrence is just great. I mean, she's always so convincing in the different roles she plays. I'd, I'd love to see her as Betty Pack. And she has the right look and the right age. Absolutely. Howard Bloom is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. He is the author of The Last Good Night, a World War II story of espionage, adventure, and betrayal. 
And I can say, I, I, when I got this book, I gave myself several days to read it because I wanted to make sure I had enough time. I didn't need it. I basically read it in an afternoon. Uh, it was something that was near impossible to put down. So I congratulate you on how successful this book has been. So thank you, Howard, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-SPYCAST. Talk to you next week.